Hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today I am joined by Dr Sharon Cox, who is a Senior Research Fellow at the Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group in UCL. Uh, she is also a Principal Investigator on eCigO, an ontology for e-cigarette research funded by Cancer Research UK. Um, Dr Cox is here to talk about a paper that was out today, uh, as it happens, today, uh, the day that we're recording this interview, not the day that you're listening to it. And that paper is called Toward an Ontology of Tobacco, Nicotine and Vaping Products. Uh, Sharon, welcome to Addiction Audio. Hi, Rob. Uh, So one of the purposes of this article uh, is to minimise confusion about nicotine and tobacco products. Uh, Can you briefly explain why it's important to minimise that confusion and, and what confusion currently exists? Okay, that's a brilliant starter. So ontologies, if I just give you a primer on what they are, are a formal way of representing the world by first identifying different domains of interest. And here, the domain of interest is nicotine, tobacco and vaping products or research. And then structuring the key pieces of knowledge from those domains um, into uh, by their entities. Now, entities can be anything. They can be a cigarette. They can be a person. They can be an object, a person, a place a role, um, an outcome, absolutely anything. So what we do is we structure those key entities into their specialised domains and we visually represent them closest to the entities that they have the closest relationships to. So it's a way of visually organising a ton of knowledge that we um, have in our our field into a way that's organised and systematic but is also organised in a way that makes sense. So nicotine and tobacco research, and specifically e-cigarette research, there's an abundance of it, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because we have a lot of it, but more still it's because, and this is common across the sciences, but this is particularly problematic when you've got something that's important, like smoking research, which you know is important because smoking kills lots of people, We have this problematic situation where people are using the same terms to mean different things or using different terms to mean the same things. And that's um, a problem within sometimes specific research groups even, but it's definitely a problem cross-country where when we get legislation involved or policy involved and therefore things are often described by what they're um, regulated as and not actually what they are. And a key Mm. example of that is in the US, an e-cigarette is called a tobacco product, whereas in the UK, it's not. Um, Mm. And that's because in the US, that's how it's regulated. Now, you can call it what you like, but at the end of the, the day, it is what it is. And that's the thing that I kind of always come back to in its simplest form. What ontologies do is categorize things by what they are, and the properties of those objects. And that's what we're doing here. So we think, uh, my co-authors and I on this paper, it's really important to start an ontology of nicotine, tobacco and vaping products to try and clear up some of the confusion that currently persists in academic writing. I mean, it sounds like an enormous task. So it's one of the things that kind of bugs me uh, quite often with, uh, say, vaping products is you see signs, um, I think, most recently on a train station that says um, you're not permitted to smoke on this station and that includes vaping products or e-cigarettes and it irritates me because it doesn't include smoking doesn't include e-cigarettes but it irritates me because I'm a pedant about these things 
Uh, how are ontologies useful for for people who people who aren't pedants? So I think as a researcher, which we are, we should be pedants, and we should think it's important that the products that we write about, we're writing about with accuracy. Why that's important for people who are not researchers, but maybe are involved in health communication, because we want to be clear. We want to be really clear with the public. We want to make sure that we're writing um, lay outputs, developing health campaigns, um, advising external companies like train companies, perhaps like any other or other types of organisations. Lots of academics work with health organisations, we want to make sure that we're communicating um, the science of our subject as clearly as we can. And that really starts with our academic work. So when we write a paper, it gains attention. And sometimes we don't have a lot of control of how that's transferred out into the public space. So if we can do as good a job as possible in our papers of being as clear and as accurate about what we're describing, I say this as if I'm the queen of this, <laughs> hand up, I'm not, I've learned a lot. But if we can start from that point, then people whose job it is to really communicate the, the findings of our papers, the progress of our subject area, then hopefully these outputs will be a lot better and a lot clearer. So I think that the benefit is not direct for these groups, but it's more about having a trickle down effect. One of the benefits of, of these ontologies is it kind of forces the issue. So you've got people who, are, who consider products to be different things. Well, actually, if you don't kind of force these things into some kind of agreed system um, or map or ontology, then, then actually they can continue meaning different things. But this kind of brings that issue to, to a bit of a head. Uh, what do you then do uh, when you have people who disagree about the very nature of uh, of a thing? Well, that's going to happen. And that happens with findings of papers. So disagreements in scientific research is not anything new. We realise that this is a big project and it's a new project and it might seem a bit alternative. Not everyone will agree. Not everybody will use the ontology. But for those that do find it useful, and we think people will and people have started to use it, um, that it will be useful. It will be useful for people. It will help with people's um, academic writing. It will help people to also, you know, build theories, to, um, you know, plan studies. When you take a, a visual look at the ontology, maybe not so much with the products, but when we and we will be publishing papers on different types of behaviours or different types of outcomes, it can get people thinking about ways that you should, um, you know, be measuring outcomes, the way that you should be reporting outcomes, those kind of things. It will be really helpful. It, we're not in the business of telling people you're doing it wrong. Instead, this project is about assisting research. And I think we need to put it across like that. You can call something what you want as long as you're being clear about it. And that's what the ontology does. So we have lots of synonyms, for example, in the ontology. So a synonym for an e-cigarette might be, you know, nicotine vaping device. Now, fine, call it a nicotine vaping device. But if you tag it to the definition in the ontology, everybody knows you're talking about that product. So it's just about making things clear. It's not about being prescriptive. It's supposed to be helpful. Um, you know, these are the sorts of projects which I often think are like the foundations of us of the work that we do they're often thankless tasks but they need to be done they need yeah. to be done and they are important 
And there, there was an interesting note I thought in your in your paper where you said that actually what you can do now now uh, that you have this uh, this ontology is you can kind of backward apply it to articles that have been written in the past before the ontology existed. So you can actually use it to group outcomes from the same product in a way that wasn't as easy or, or as possible before. Uh, how, how do you go about doing that? So this is what we're going to start doing in the future, and we need to get more funding to be able to do this, but we can annotate the ontology. So I think one of the things people get scared of is that the ontology is an index or a def- or a dictionary. It is a bit of an index, but also what's cool about the ontologies, if, it's, if that part doesn't appeal to you, you will be able to, as I say, visually explore the ontology in a way you can't an index and dictionary and be able to look at the entities it's related to. But eventually you'll be able to look at those entities and see where they, those outcomes have been used. So, for example, six months continuous smoking abstinence or 12 months continuous smoking abstinence, we should be able to or will be able to link papers where that definition and that outcome has been used in that study in the way that we define it in the ontology. Hmm. Um, it's, it's quite important when you start looking through uh, it's trial data, outcomes differ. And actually, even things like the Russell Standard, people have wildly interpreted <laughs> <laughs> So it is it is useful when people are designing future studies to be able to look at past studies. And this is a quick way of doing that. You know, at the moment, actually, there isn't, you know, there's keyword searches, but this is a way of being able to bring a few together at once and think, okay, people have done the work for me here. This is the way that this outcome has been expressed, or this is the way that this product has been used in this study. Yeah, I, it, it's one of those things, every time I look at it, I think that the potential for these ontologies to, to help bring what can often be a very dispersed, I mean, not, not, not just like tobacco and uh, nicotine research, but across the board, to bring those things together on an agreed set of identities is, is, is really, really um, impressive and important. Um, so for, for, people, for people listening, um, yeah, you know, I, I would recommend going, going back to the, uh, the paper to look up... Um, there's lots of fascinating things about continuance, occurrence, qualities, dispositions, um, owl language and machine learning. The potentials are endless. And if you like those kinds of discussions about the nature of existence and what things exist and how they relate to each other, then uh, then definitely go for it. But yes. Can I just add, if that doesn't appeal to you and you just want a clear definition of something, don't feel you have to be a machine learning expert. You don't have to be... a a great data scientist. I mean, I'm PI in this project and I am definitely none of those things. Um, (laughs) But, um, but, you know, there is something in an ontology to help all researchers. So that stuff is in there for the people who want that. Yeah. Yeah. But if you don't want that stuff, don't be put off. Uh, I mean, every, everyone's been in that position on a research project where they're like, oh, we need to define these things. Or go to the ontology. You don't have to sit there and make it up from scratch anymore. This is um, this is there. Um, so when it comes to the uh, tobacco product uh, findings from, from this paper, um, if, if that's the correct thing to call them, um, which were the most important um, definitions and categories uh, among tobacco products that you identified? So we found distinct classes. So it starts with tobacco containing products. And the important word is they're containing. 
uh, nicotine-containing products and then vaping devices. And then there's subclasses of tobacco-containing products like combustible tobacco-containing products. And it's really important that we distinguish combustible tobacco-containing products from smokeless um, combust uh, sorry, smokeless tobacco-containing products. Why I think that's really important, and we do have an ontology or a division of the ontology being developed on smokeless tobacco products, of which there's loads. But it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, problem that we do in the UK, in the US, and um, well anywhere outside of you know the Middle East and um, and Asia actually is that we we talk about tobacco containing products as if they're largely combustible, um, and they're not. And why these are important to distinguish is because um, they differ in their levels of relative risk and harm. So um, defining things uh, by, what contain, by, by what contains tobacco and what doesn't, and further still, what is combustible and what is not, and then, more importantly, which does not contain tobacco, but is a nicotine smokeless product or a nicotine-containing product. And again, in vaping, the, nowadays, you know, you, there are lots of things that you can vape. It doesn't mean they're an e-cigarette and it doesn't mean that they're, you know, a water pipe either or anything like that. It's really important as the market evolves. We had this problem with, you all know, Rob, um, the um, electronic vaping associated lung injury, Avali, as it was called. And it was quickly attributed to e-cigarettes because people had been vaping and they were vaping e-cigarettes. We've got this issue where vaping has become this, you know, term for e-cigarette use. It's used interchangeably. So if you're a vapor, it's implied you're an e-cigarette user. And on the street, that's probably fine. But for science communication and for epidemiological investigation, that's not okay. We need to be distinguishing between these different classes of products. So I think that the 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 important part of this product is that we've got tobacco containing nicotine containing and vaping devices as that as the overarching you know um divisions and then people can go through each of those branches to to see what products are in those branches now it's really important that as people go down and the products get more specific they inherit whatever is above it so, for example, a combustible cigarette will, in, will inherit everything that's in a tobacco-containing product. So we don't have to rewrite all what's in it again because it naturally inherits what's in it. So everything that goes above it is in the child. It's, it's like a parent-child relationship and it inherits that. And this is how we start to delineate between the products. So, um, you know, it's really important, I think, in e-cigarette research, tobacco, vaping, whatever, you know, you want to call it research, that we that we distinguish between these classes now what we have done though it's not in the paper but we allude to it is you can have something and it's on it's on the ontology it's in a dicto vocab which is our website where you can access all of these definitions it's freely available um we do have fda defined um e-cigarette i think is something like that so that tells you that we do have it. We acknowledge that it exists. It's not about saying it doesn't exist, um, but it's, it, 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 it highlights to the, you, to the reader. And if you're going to use this, you're using it in the way the FDA have defined it. 
I think, uh, yeah, no, it absolutely does. Uh, it's one of the kind of really frustrating things when you're talking to people about, about vaping and, and tobacco is when you kind of reach that brick wall of, well, they're all the same, aren't they? And, and this kind of really highlights that as researchers, we need to be so clear about why they're not the same and why things are different and how things are similar. I think so. So there's two examples where I can think. So Ivali's one, actually, mm. but I can think of a further two. So one is when we're looking at the epidemiological evidence of youth vaping. So if we say senior school students or if you're in the US, high school students are using a tobacco product, that sounds pretty bad. But yeah. when you're thinking, OK, these are e-cigarettes. Now, I'm not saying that's great, but in terms of population risk, OK, so they're not actually smoking combustible cigarettes. So that's one issue. The next part, which will be in a future paper, is what do we mean by use? And this has come up repeatedly. Um, if we define use as ever use, well, again, so it seems pretty high. We've got all these young people using these products. Wow, you know, this, this means we need to do a lot about this. Let's get on it. But actually, if we start to break down what use is, which seems pretty simple, but not always done. Um, so what is the product and what do we mean by use? You start to see that the evidence is revealing a pattern of behaviour that's not actually quite as scary as it might seem on the face of it. We found out that this is an e-cigarette now, but they've used it once a month. Yeah. So <laughs> it's important, I think, for helping to for designing studies and for being clear in the communication. If our paper is accurate and if our press release, associated press release is also accurate, then we know as researchers that we've at least tried to do our job, which is to be clear about the evidence. And that's all yeah. we can do. And I think that clarity does it influences how uh, media outlets report as well. Um, you know, there's, there's a big responsibility on researchers to get that to get that right. Uh, coming back slightly uh, to the uh, smokeless tobacco uh, issue. Um, and I think you mentioned ICOS by name in in the paper. But you said you had some difficulties in in classifying um, ICOS. Um, because some elements probably do burn and some elements don't? At the current time, there's some contradictory evidence on whether there is a small amount of combustion. Now, I'm not an expert in this, but we've had expert input into this. So ontologies are not fixed. So as the evidence emerges, if we find that there is actually some combustion, then they can change position. They don't have to stay where they are. Um, so that has been difficult. So what we've, I think what we've called that one it is under um, a tobacco containing product and we've described the properties and we can have notes. And with that one, we have a note about why it's not under like a smokeless or a non-combustible. So once there's more study, you know, once there are more studies, we'll be able to understand uh, where that's positioned a bit better but that's the joy of ontologies and it would be great to see how it evolves in the future yeah and and, and one of those real benefits isn't it of, of doing this mapping study and, and really being able to spot in a kind of quite visual way the bits that you don't know and that need more research better evidence well that was part of the point of this actually to be able to when we start the annotations to be able to say there's a lot of research here <laughs> there's a lot less research here and yeah. that's important. Um, yeah. So when you were when you were classifying these, I mean, you, you've worked in tobacco um, research uh, for a long time uh, now. Um, and, and as you were going through this and, and coming through a lot of um, 
products and, and types of use and behaviours that, that you will have worked with for a long time. Were there any classifications that surprised you? Were there any that you thought, right, okay, I'm going to know all of this. And then as you were classifying them, I, I, you just that, that surprised you or did everything roughly fit where you, you expected it to? It's been a real learning curve for me because I was unfamiliar with ontologies. I had mm. nothing to do with ontologies before this. I heard Robert West speak at uh, a nicotine and tobacco conference in Munich, I think in 2017. And along with Caitlin Notley, we thought this would be quite a good idea and not that hard. And here we are years later. But yes, there have been because, you know, you, you have to describe things by what they are. And that can push your thinking sometimes of actually, what is this? Where does it fit? Um, the smokeless actually project that's going on alongside this has really surprised me. I was incredibly naive to the number of smokeless tobacco products and the variance in the way that they're used, in the way that they have different profiles of harm, um, regional differences, the fact that some products are not actually that clear in how people use them or you might think that they're a, you know a nasal product but actually in some other places they're oral products it's mm. so it it's it's been it's been a joy in a way to learn a lot more about nicotine and tobacco products and vaping products um i thought i knew quite a lot about hookers and water pipes and that kind of thing i didn't so it's it has been really really um fun and interesting to learn a lot but you know I think at the upper levels certainly I had a really clear idea well we all did of what things what were the main classes and roughly they are what we thought they would be these main classes of vaping nicotine and tobacco containing products um so yeah that that part's been really good and that's where this all started from really just being able to say we think we know this, but do we? Can we put it all together? And we have sought expert input. So we've had workshops with experts. We've had focus groups. We've had, I've had, you know, we've been running PPI groups. So yes, you know, you've got us authors on this paper, but this has had external input and people challenging our um, our categorizations of products. You know, we have changed things. So, and and actually on that point, we do welcome feedback. So if people look and say, this isn't clear, it might be that we don't change it, but it might be that we need to make it clear. It's like the peer review process, isn't it? You don't have to accept all the recommendations, but you do need to be able to respond to them somehow. Um, now, you mentioned, you mentioned that feedback. So that's, that's on, on Chaos, the, the, the website, isn't it? You said that you people are invited to comment on Chaos, spelled Q, Q-E-I-O-S. So, like, with people commenting on it, and I think you just alluded to it there, um, what am I, has that been useful or a bit of a nightmare at times? No, it's always useful. It's, um, it, I mean, even if, even if it's something that shouldn't change, mm. it tells us that we've not made it very clear of why this entity is placed here and not over there. So that's useful because because we need we need to write a note so we do have notes that it, you know where we express why we've come to this definition one example is our definition of addiction so when people read it it's not very clear to them why we've come up with this definition and actually we're in the process of reviewing and rewriting it it's probably the hardest one to do um yeah. but <laughs> the explanation hopefully makes it clear at least what we're thinking 
Now, if you don't agree, you can have your own definition of addiction, but you need to tell other people what you mean by that. So maybe I think when we get feedback, it's just that we've not been very clear what we mean. There's there's absolutely gallons um, in there, and it's it's a fascinating subject area. Um, what what next for ontologies and for for your area of research? Are you, are you continuing to work in ontologies? You said that you were you were involved in addict O as well as ESIG O. So addict O is the big addiction ontology. Um, of which ESIGO, which I was leading, um, is part of. Um, yes, I'm still involved in both projects and we should have a paper coming out shortly, again in addiction, which is similar to this paper towards an ontology. It's always toward because it's never complete of um, addiction identities using a case example from nicotine tobacco and vaping research. So that's about how we um, classify and name and specify different types of um, uh, smokers or people who smoke or vape. So uh, that paper should be coming out soon. We're also working on um, a paper around outcomes, so different outcomes in research. So, you know, so it's ongoing. We keep populating the ontology. Um, it's it's um, it's a task I think I'll be I think I'll be working on this till I retire because it, there is no end it's you know there is no end with ontologies you don't just sit back and go oh well that looks about right and uh <laughs> got that sorted <laughs> well yeah yeah I've got that sorted so let's go and have tea and biscuits I mean you can do that but it will soon be out of date and no one will be using it so we if, if we want it to be useful which we do and we want it to be relevant it has to be updated um, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and what else outside of the ontologies are you working on at the moment? Um, my work focuses on tobacco-related health inequalities. So along with Professor Lynn Dawkins at London South Bank, we're running uh, the world's first uh, cluster randomised control trial of e-cigarettes versus usual care to people who access homeless support services. So I'm doing that at the moment, uh, which is great. That's a three-year trial. We're nearly a year into it. Another project that I'm leading, uh, which has been funded by the MRC, is uh, we are co-designing and developing a harm reduction toolkit. So a set of resources, basically, for people who access homeless services to be offered smoking cessation support. So that's great. Um, and then on top of that, I work... Um, on the smoking toolkit study with my colleagues here at UCL. So Leon Shahab, Jamie Brown, Sarah Jackson, Lauren Cock, et cetera, et cetera. And it's great. So I'm, it's a, the, the work I do is very complementary to the ontology because I'm fortunate in that I'm around and working in my field and working on papers all the time. So the, I am my own case example of somebody that needs the product. So it's brilliant in that way. <laughs> Excellent. And on, the, on that note, Dr. Sharon Cox, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rob. It's been lovely.